So again, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. If it works for you to put your video on, it's nice to see people. People may still be getting back. So um, for my talk and exploration, I want to go further into a theme that we've looked at a lot, which is really the meaning of awakening and liberation. And I want to do so in a way that's particularly uh, connected with the unusual confluence at this time of major holidays from several of the great spiritual traditions of the world, that it's right now the time of Passover. We've just had also Easter, and it's also Ramadan. And so I want to explore, and some, I think a little bit ambitiously, uh, how all these uh, connect. Because uh, I've often had the sense and been inspired that there is a kind of core teaching that we maybe get from the most developed people from every tradition, which can be expressed very, very simply, you know, as that it's possible to develop, to come to, uh, you know, a deep expression of our nature as love, as interconnection, and as skillful action. And I know that when I've uh, been with people from other traditions, we often focus in that way. We don't so much focus on the theology or the philosophy, but we focus on, you know, how do you work with fear? How do you work with uh, developing love? How do you develop a sense of interconnection? It's been interesting to have that. And we, we did that in uh, February when I invited my friend uh, Yasir Chadli, who's a, a Sufi teacher, and we, we explored some of those themes together. And so I've been, I've been also very influenced. One of my teachers over the years has been Houston Smith, who was one, is one of the, maybe he died maybe four or five years ago, you know, at the age like 98, I think. But he was one of the proponents of what's sometimes called the perennial philosophy, the notion that at their, at their contemplative and mystical depths, the world religions are saying something very similar, if not identical. And it's, um, it's a very interesting theme to explore. So I, you know, I've been um, interested in that. And I wanted to explore this in part also by sharing some of what I've found on my recent travels, you know, going to K Kentucky. I visited, uh, I was in Louisville, Kentucky mostly, but I also spent a large part of the day at the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was a monk, where uh, I typically go once a year and visit and have a, a good friend there named Brother Paul Quinon, who was a student of Merton, who's in his early 80s now. And I'll, I'll bring in him later. And so I'll bring in some other thing, um, part, you know, um, aspects also from my travels, also being, being in, North, in North Carolina. So we've looked at the Buddhist understanding of awakening, uh, of course, to accomplish stable awakening is the task of the whole tradition, right? But it can be understood fairly simply. You know, the Buddha generally talked about awakening. You know, and remember the, the very word Buddha comes from the root to awaken. You know, and he generally talked about it as the overcoming of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and delusion could be a synonym, is a synonym for ignorance. That there's something very um, deep about ourselves and about the nature of things that we don't quite get. 
that we live our lives uh, caught up in what one writer called the skin-encapsulated ego. That we live with this sense of separateness and getting something for me. And of course, we have many aspects of our lives where we go beyond that, you know, in love, connection, caring, compassion, and so forth. But our practice in many ways is working continually to transform the manifestations that keep us more limited, that keep us uh, in a little bit of a, you know, a self-centered cocoon, right? And again, we can see that how that manifests, you know, not just on a personal level, but on a collective level with a lot of the you know, horrors of the world, the violence of the world could be seen as a direct manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the Buddha also sometimes more positively talked about awakening as the coming to a deep awareness. We could call it a kind of non-dual awareness beyond our usual awareness. And the Buddha used the terms, I'll come back to this later, he used the language of an awareness which is signless beyond ordinary conceptualization, which is boundless, which has almost like an infinite awareness that has no limits, and then is also all luminous. Those were the words the Buddha used for an awakened state. And so he didn't talk that way so much, but we could also see awakening as touching those qualities. So I want to connect those kind of teachings with what we find in uh, the traditions related to uh, Passover, to Easter, and then to Ramadan. And I'm going to show a bunch of slides, which I really had fun preparing. So this will be some slideshow, and I'll also have some music. Okay, you ready for music? You can can dance if you want to. Okay, well, and uh, yeah, so I had a lot of fun developing this, and uh, yeah, so, so Passover. Probably most of you know the story of Passover. How, how many of you are pretty familiar with the story of the exodus of the so-called Israelites from from slavery in Egypt? Yeah, so looks like about a little over half are familiar. So, you know, in, in the book of Exodus, that is the basis for Passover, the people who become the Jewish people are called the Israelites, and they are in slavery in Egypt. And the, the God of the Israelites is named Yahweh, and he appears to Moses in a vision of a burning bush and tells him to confront the Pharaoh, basically to free uh, my people. And so he says, you know, he says, if you don't free my people, we will inflict 10 plagues on the people of Egypt. And so Pharaoh does not free the Israelites. And so what happens is that the plagues are unleashed. And the last of them, you may remember, is the killing of the firstborn. So let me show, start my screen share here. So here we can see, this is a, a painting from the 19th century of the death of the son of the Pharaoh, of the firstborn. And so after this last thing happens, the Pharaoh says, all right, Israelites, please leave. And so they leave. And again, many of you know the story that they are leaving 
and they are at the Red Sea trying to leave and they don't know how they're going to do it. And actually the Pharaoh has sent his soldiers to basically to kill them, to hunt them down. And so there's this, and you know, what's described as a miracle coming from Yahweh to part the Red Sea. And there, these are a few paintings that I found. Let's see. Yeah, okay. So here's a painting of the sea's parting. And another another image of the sea's parting. And of course, many of you know that the Israelites were able to escape across the Red Sea and the soldiers of the Pharaoh are drowned when the seas return. And the Israelites go on to live, to go to the land of Canaan. And that's, that's the situation where Moses then goes to the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. So the, the ceremony of Passover, uh, particularly for Jewish people, is to remember the continuity with um, really the quest for freedom and the quest for liberation. And, and that's, what, um, that's what the Passover holiday really brings in. And actually it's, it's um, both, we could say, an outer liberation and also an inner liberation. The, the Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which means narrow straits. And, and so this is understood to be a narrow place of our own confusion, fragmentation, and spiritual disconnection. And so there's also as part of the Passover ceremony, a chance to look at one's own mind, heart, and body in a, in a more contemplative way that has parallels with what we do in Buddhist practice. And so it's the, really the connection of that inner liberation with the outer, the outer liberation from slavery and more generally the celebration of the ending of oppression. And I'll come back to that because what often happens is that one people end their own oppression, but then may oppress another. So that's what I'll, I'll come back to. So the Passover is basically about the liberation from slavery in Egypt. And it's, um, it's a story that's been used by many people, the early Puritans coming to the U.S. saw what they were doing as a replaying of the Exodus story. They saw their travel over the Atlantic as um, repeating the Exodus, and they would create in New England a new Israel. So there, there, there are complexities here. And Exodus has also played a very, very significant role for uh, in the um, African-American community, both during the time of slavery and, and after. And here I wanna show a, some images and then have, have a song. Um, these are images that I found on my recent trip. I went to a um, museum connected with Black Mountain College in Asheville, North Carolina. And there was, um, an exhibit particularly of the black artists connected with Black Mountain College, which was a very innovative college, which only existed from about 1935 to 1957 and connected with some wonderful artists, including uh, Jacob Lawrence, who wrote this book, and also uh, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Mary Carolyn Richards, uh, a number of poets, and at the museum, I found this book by Jacob Lawrence, and the go, you know, the use of the story of Harriet Tubman to relate to really directly connected with the Exodus story. Again, very central in African American history, some of the spirituals and so forth. So here are some images 
from that book. You know, uh, Harriet as a young girl, Harriet, hear tell about the promised land, how Moses led the slaves over Egypt's sand, how Pharaoh's heart was hard as stone. Now the Lord told Moses he was not alone. And then another image from the book, uh, this book by Jacob Lawrence. This is, uh, you know, Harriet Tubman as an adult now taking the slaves to freedom. Then the north wind howled like a bloodhound pack, but none were afraid and none turned back. Harriet led them across the snow towards the promised land as Moses led his people across the burning sand. And so very strong images. And I wanted to um, actually play a song from uh, Paul Robeson um, called one of the old spirituals about the Exodus called Go Down Moses. And this is uh, Paul Robeson, um, one of the great figures. You know, he was actually my, he influenced my parents a lot. They grew up in New York and actually saw him a number of times. And I grew up with his, his music. He was, he was an activist who was uh, persecuted by the U.S. government for, you know, for having connections with uh, uh, left-wing groups. And this is him on a, uh, on a picket line, probably in the 1940s or 50s. And so I'll play a song. I think I, think I need to stop the screen, screen share and then go to it again. Let's see, so let me try it again. This is, we wanna to go to advanced. Okay, so here's Go Down Moses by Paul Robeson. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell all Pharaoh to let my people go. Speak the Lord, bull Moses said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. Go down, Moses. Wait down in Egypt's land. Tell Shall they in bondage toil? Let my people go. Let them come out with Egypt's spoil. Let my people go. Go down, Moses. Wait down in Egypt's land. Tell
Yeah, quite quite something, huh? Did you hear that okay? Great. So, nonetheless, just a, a few comments relate to Passover. There are some complexities with Passover. One of them is, is that um, it's basically a myth and it doesn't match up with the historical record too well, but <laughs> that's, that's what most scholars think. But uh, I think it's still a beautiful story in many ways. And then the other complexity is that of um, um, there are ways in which a group can leave oppression and then go on to oppress others. Some people have raised questions, well, what happened to the people in Canaan where the Israelites went? You know, were they just displaced? What happened to them? And of course, we, we see that more with the current situation with uh, Israel-Palestine, that uh, just as people are repeating this beautiful Passover story, there's also, there can be a tendency to, um, um, to continue oppression. And it's, it's hard. I think the, the, the basis for compassion here, and I, I say this having spent, I think as many of you know, um, some long trips in 2017 and 19 in both Israel and the West Bank. And I, I, gave, a, you know, I gave a talk about that you know, in, in July, I gave two talks in July 2017 after my first trip. But I hold that, you know, um, what can happen is that when there's unresolved uh, trauma in one's background, as I think is widely there for Jewish people, there can be, there can be a way that they just want to be safe. And then it actually can be possible to be oppressive. And I'll just, I thought I'd just share a few images. These are from, these are from uh, Bethlehem. Let's see. This is uh, a photo I took uh, three years ago. This is the separation barrier. This is in Bethlehem in the West Bank. And still a very oppressive situation. And this is further part of the, the wall there, which expresses a valuable sentiment. And so I want to relate that more to, uh, to Buddhist practice Again, I think we can have compassion. The way I understand the situation there is we have two deeply traumatized people with a power imbalance. And so it really takes like deep healing and transformation. That's the short version. You know, I give a longer version. But we, we do have the situation where unless there's consciousness, efforts at social justice can you know, overcome one form of oppression and lead to another. You know, that's, um, that's a danger. You know, I know when I was in college, I was very dismayed. I, I was interested in studying the history of revolutions. And you read all the promises of the French Revolution or the Soviet Revolution, and pretty soon they become oppressive themselves, right? It's a very, very common pattern, you know. And it's something that uh, we can have both compassion for but we can also understand the, and this is where I connect with Buddhist practice, the really the imperative of what um, Dr. King called having the means be as pure as the ends, right? And having this uh, correspondence between one's goal and the means one uses. And to be aware that there are very strong tendencies uh, when when we have a, a painful situation, to be reactive towards it. You know, this is the core Buddhist teaching that I teach a lot. Remember the teaching of the second arrow that I've given a lot, which is basically that if, if I receive pain, I will tend to be reactive, you know, in relation to my pain. I will tense, I will blame someone, I will do all this. 
and that the great inner work is to transform that reactivity. And so I think that, you know, a piece of the Passover story really invites that when we're confronting social injustice to really be clear there. Someone like Dr. King was really, really clear about this. He, you know, this is from him. The means must be as pure as the end. The end represents the means and process and the ideal in the making. And so he also said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an en enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. Love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. So I think it's very crucial to have that, have that understanding. You know, where another way it's expressed by the Buddha, hatred never ends through hatred. By love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth from the Dhammapada. So very crucial to keep in mind when we're addressing difficult situations. Not easy, right? Even, you know, can I, can I be with a difficulty with a friend and come at it with empathy and compassion? You know, so it sometimes takes the inner work to work with one's own stuff, one's own reactivity. So for me, this is part of what's brought up by the uh, Passover story. You know, so the aim is really the what uh, Dr. King called the beloved community. The end is reconciliation. And, and very similar to what we have with metta, you know, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. So very crucial when we have any kind of difficulty or conflict to keep that vision in mind, or when we're looking at any uh, situation of injustice, because there are strong tendencies, unless we have that vision, to replicate the problem. And again, we can see that in our own minds and interactions, right? How many can relate to that? Just in trying to work out something with a friend, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And so that's what I wanted to say about uh, in relation to Passover. And now uh, say a little bit about Easter. So this, again, I uh, just felt ambitious, but I felt the call to do this. So. And I, I'm on uh, a little bit less solid ground with Easter, being uh, not of a Christian background. But I will. But on the other hand, I will. I will try. So I think we know the um, uh, the history uh, that led to Easter. Easter is the commemoration of the resurrection after the crucifixion. You know, Easter occurs three days after the crucifixion. And, of course, what happened is that Jesus was arrested and tried in the uh, local court, and they sentenced him to be uh, whipped and then crucified by the Romans, right? And so he was uh, stripped of his clothing. And I wanted to show also some images, and these are ones that I brought back also from Bethlehem in the West Bank, the... the these were in the main church, which is right over the supposed birthplace of, of Jesus. And these may, you know, I wanted to show these images of, of what happened. So these are images from the church in Bethlehem of the way that Jesus was made to carry the cross. These are all from this church right above the supposed birth site in Bethlehem. Very, very powerful, intense story.
eventually is crucified and then taken down And so, I wanted to say just a little bit about what, you know, what is the meaning of the resurrection and how might that connect with our, our own practice. And again, here I'm relying on some people whose interpretation I value. One of them I, comes from uh, Matthew Fox, who is a really uh, one of the great contemporary Christian mystics. And he described the resurrection as less about the, you know, the resurrection of an individual and more as in terms of the meaning for people, it's a release of the fear of death. In other words, death doesn't have the last word. And rather that... um, the teaching is to release the, you know, to, to approach death and to release the fear of death and to, you know, in Christian language, to enter into eternal life in this very life, you know, which we could say has parallels with the sense of awakening, becoming liberated, and so forth. Um, and I wanted to give another interpretation. Or let me let me say this was um, the the great Christian theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas said that there actually are two resurrections. There's the actual resurrection of the body, but he says the first resurrection is this is his language waking up in this lifetime, and that if you do that, you don't need the second one. <laughs> You don't need to resurrect as an individual being. And so, and then I had a, uh, I'll do another uh, screen share. And this is, uh, on my recent trip, I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane, which you can see in the back, and I visited with, uh, with Brother Paul, who is, was a student of Thomas Merton, and I typically visit with him. I've known him for 40 years because I lived at one point in Kentucky and I would go out to the Abbey about every six weeks or so. And we typically, when I come, we typically have a lunch. And I was very glad that he felt okay to do it, you know, despite uh, COVID. And so we, we had a, a lunch. We um, talked and then we took a, took a walk in the land around the, the Abbey. And here's... Uh, Here's another picture. This is a, a this this was a so-called selfie, <laughs> okay, and and so let's see. I think that's good enough. So, brother uh, brother Paul is 81 now, and he has uh, come out in the last three years with two books. At age 81, just this year, he's come out with a book called How to Be. And I was reading this because he has material on what he thinks about, he, what he thinks the resurrection means. And I wanted to read from that. He also came out with a memoir, which is very beautiful, uh, which I think is called In Praise of the Useless Life. You can look it up. Anyway, he's, he's a jewel. And here's what he said. Uh, about death and resurrection. And I thought this is interesting as an interpretation of Easter and very, very much connects with Buddhist practice. He said in this book, I think of death as an entrance into the totality of everything. Therefore, our whole approach to the idea of heaven and resurrection just might be on the wrong foot. I rarely think about heaven. because it always comes down to thinking of what I would like, what would suit me, and that's a goal too small. To gain the totality, you must give totally of everything. Every person is made for nothing less than the everything. As for resurrection, 
I am still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> this is a someone who's been a monk for like 60 years. <laughs> right? I'm still trying to figure that one out. Resurrection of the body seems to imply the continuation of some kind of finite existence, or maybe not. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. As I unite with the person of Jesus, I unite with all persons with whom he is united. As Christ embraces the whole cosmos, then the totality of the cosmos becomes mine. I like how St. Paul put it, God will, become, will be all in all. So that's his understanding of it. It's very similar, uh, very similar to, I think, what we find in Buddha's teaching, you know, where Buddha says, you know, right, you know uh, open, right after his awakening, open the doors of the deathless. So we could see, you know, one way to interpret what the meaning of resurrection is in a way that connects with Buddha's practice is to see it as exploring our fear of death and to see it as coming towards experiences which overcome that fear, which I think awakening and awakening experiences do that. This is the Buddha. This is the deathless namely the liberation of the mind through non-clinging. He said, there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, there would not be the case that escape from the fabricated would be discerned. And so again, we can look to those ways of developing an awareness that connects with everything as very similar, I think, to what Brother Paul was talking about. And then I want to just finish up by just a little bit on uh, Ramadan, because I, I know that the, the least, although I've participated in some Ramadan uh, gatherings, um, including in the West Bank. So here are some other images. This is another image from the Abbey of Gethsemane. And this is an image of Ramadan from Malaysia. And then an image of one of the great uh, mosques. This one's in Istanbul, where people gather to have the, the daily breaking of the fast called iftar. So I wanted to connect uh, Ramadan with this, partly because it's happening. Again, this is uh, uh, an annual commemoration of the first revelation to uh, the prophet Muhammad. And observing Ramadan is taken to be one of the pillars of Islam. And it usually lasts about uh, 29 or 30 days. There's fasting from dawn to sunset and there's a meal that occurs in the evening, and I sometimes shared this at Ramadan gatherings. And it's a time really of intense spiritual practice. You know, this is uh, people uh, actually, it's, it's, like a, it's like a 30 day home retreat. <laughs> you know, and which is a connection I make, because I, I really have loved doing virtual on Zoom home retreats where people connect the practice with what's going on in the daily life. And I think in Ramadan, people fast, they, they uh, are on their best ethical behavior, and they really look at their lives for a whole month. I think that's, you know, that's what I take to be the, the core meaning of it. Um, these are some quotes from, uh, from the Prophet Muhammad. When the, when the month of Ramadan starts, the gates of heaven are opened. When the month of Ramadan arrives, the door of mercy, the door of mercy is opened. It is a time, he uh, it said, for soul cleansing. This is from uh, a teacher named Ibn Jim. Ramadan is boot camp for Muslims. <laughs> In this holy month, make every day count. 
So it's really a time of purification, like the uh, very much like the, the range retreat in Buddhist tradition. So that's my that's my sharing. And maybe I'll close. I had one other one other any people want to hear some music to close? Anyone raise your hand. You want to hear some music. Okay. This is uh some of you know um Bob Marley and the Whalers had a song called Exodus. So I'm going to play the first part of this. And you can't hear all the words so clearly, but I'll just mention some of the words in the song. It's about going away from great tribulation. And uh, they, you know, they talk about going from Babylon to the promised land. You know, very similar, not, not Egypt, but Babylon is the language used in the uh, Rastafarian tra- uh, tradition. And then there's also a place where... Um, where, where Bob Marley says, send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. Send us another brother Moses, and so forth. So I'll, I'll play this just to finish. Okay. What we want to do advanced. Okay, let's hope that this works. Carlita, do I do computer audio uh, and video as well? Or I guess the mm-hmm. video, video would do it, wouldn't it? Just the audio. But I wanted, I wanted to have, let people see the video. Oh, you do. Um, if if it's an actual video, then okay. Very good. I thought I'll, it was I'll just a song. Okay. Sure. Let's see. Okay. Let me find it. Let's see. Okay. Can you see anything? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Thank you, Bob Marley. <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the first time I've used Bob Marley in one of my Dharma talks. So, thank you. I'm sorry uh, we couldn't have the video. I wanted to have that, but you can go on YouTube and look under Bob Marley uh, Exodus and find some beautiful uh, videos. So let's just sit for a moment. Been a lot of material, music, images. And see what see what's uh, alive for you. And any questions you want to ask, really? about anything I brought up or related or really in some ways anything about your own practice. Yeah, so let's open things up now. Um, can have either uh, a question, some sharing. Um, yeah, thank you for Thank you for, in a way, indulging me. It was, it, was, it, was, it was fun to accumulate this. I had that insight. It was not a usual talk that I give, but I hope it was. I guess if you stayed, you, you liked it. <laughs> okay. Um, Anna, please. Hello. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Oh, wonderful. First of all, I want to say um, thank you, as usual. And... Um, I've not been here in six weeks, mm. um, and the last time I was here was with Heidi, yeah. and I was just embarking a road trip through from Los Angeles to New York, wow. and I thought it would be 10 days, but it ended up being three weeks, oh. and just before that, I had a, what Heidi called a moment of awakening, sitting outside LAX, waiting for friends, and as you know, I had a lot of judgmental mind, and it disappeared. Mm. It literally left. And based on that, I decided to spontaneously explore the country where I feel that. Well, because it's not Germany. It was pretty um, big. And then I adopted a dog three days later and we drove 4,300 miles. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a lot of meeting of people. And interestingly enough, the people that I found happiest were in Lake Arthur, Louisiana. Huh. It's a small town on a lake. They're very religious. So everything is the Holy Spirit brought me and my dog together. But they were just at kind of in sync with their lives. And they live in a hurricane area. Huh. And I figured if you live there and you stay... You're kind of nuts to begin with. Mm. So you probably need a belief system to just put a new roof mm. on your house. And Pentecostal churchgoers, I met a group of them, and they're kind of the most like fun-having, group-having dinner I've experienced in a very long time. So I'm not saying we should all become that, but I found it very, very interesting. Um. And then I've been actually on the road ever since and was recently in Prague and I had a second kind of moment that I would like to share and also ask you something about. I was photographing a lot of people under extreme circumstances as in we were in a shopping mall. I was advertised as the big fashion photographer and I was photographing Czech people working in culture and fashion and they were all kind of afraid of me. Mm. And they were exposed in the shopping mall. Um, so, And I, at that point, was kind of done with everything. I didn't have the time because production was poorly done to look them up. So I met them. I said, hello, I'm Anna. Mm -hmm. Who are you? I should have looked you up. You're a famous actress, but I actually have not had the time. And through that, with all these people, makeup artists, 
I found out that I have the ability to kind of go into people with a few questions mm-hmm. and kind of release a few things and then put them at ease. It was very exhausting, but then it continued mm. throughout the next days. And I wonder if silent retreats were made for that because I always thought kind of awakening is like, oh, you get to know yourself. Yes, you do. But you also see other people. Right. Yeah, that's and a, I could, And it's very exhausting. That's a, no, it's a great point. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, the, the retreats uh, or in our own individual practice, we especially focus on our own minds. But what we find is that uh, our conditioning is very, very similar to the conditioning of many others. You know, then there, there, there are differences according to ethnicity and age and gender and, you know, sexual orientation and so forth. But there's a lot of very similar core conditioning. And so if you, if you look at yourself and, you know, especially develop compassion, then, you know, then the, uh, the practice is then to bring that out with others, bring the compassion and empathy to be with others and you know you have a kind of work where you can really see some of the fruits that people may be a little bit nervous with the photography and you can really connect with them and 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 help with that yeah that was bizarre it was really bizarre and it was also great i mean it was therapy for everybody involved and it kind of put me at ease with many things in my life but that doesn't really matter but what I want to ask you, as somebody who teaches a lot, if you can share that, how do you how do you take breaks? Is that your daily practice? How do you take breaks? Yeah, when you when you actually have because I think you do have that ability to yeah even in, in these teachings with a few questions or Jack Cornfield when he teaches it's almost like it's 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 amazing to watch with three questions he helps people. Yeah, in a way that is mesmerizing. Um, I, I think I think think the fact that you're just identifying breaks, then it's really a matter of finding out what what kind of breaks work for you, and you know just wait, what helps you. Um, you know, it's both a question of your larger way you arrange your life. Am I doing too much? Look at, <laughs> yes, look, at look at the big picture. That's a question for most uh, of us, and. You know, when I did my four-week retreat in March, you know, I have this generally, you know, just um, important to not take in as much news as I take in. You know, mm-hmm. half an hour a day is adequate. You know, taking in more, we can get excited and so forth. So it's partly a matter of really looking at your, your diet, so to speak, of what you take in. And uh, a retreat is really good, or even if you do like a day of meditation, because then you can just ask deeply, what adjustment do I need to make? What adjustment do I need to make to be more spacious, not do too much, and so forth? Yeah, and also not overshare and overwhelm other people, because that happens, of course, as well, because this, especially through the road trip, I photographed so many people and heard so many stories, which taught me, I think, a lot. And at one point, you're just like... So thank you for having me back. <laughs> um, yeah. but, and also to the Sangha, I want to say the postcards will come, but I've just been on on the go, basically. Thanks. Thank you, Anna. You're welcome back. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth, please. <clears throat> yes, hello. Thank you so much for this topic. It's was um, edifying for me to see the connection between the um, the Easter celebration, the resurrection, and Buddhism. I was raised Catholic and then went on to explore Christianity and, um, and for the past uh, six years have been exploring Buddhism and mindfulness practice. And it's nice to see them woven together because mm. I did experience a lot of spiritual awakening through Christianity, but it's a diff- it was a, it was different. But it's kind of nice to see 
that it was not for any, it was for not, it was not in, in vain doing that, that I can yeah. see that blended into my Buddhism practice. And it's, it's, it was very edifying. Like, so I, w- I just want to thank you for that. That was very much appreciated. You know, thank you're you. very welcome, Elizabeth. Yeah. There's just to, um, you know, the, the best of all of these traditions, uh, come from generations and generations of seeing what works, seeing what's helpful. And yeah, and to, uh, and there there are a lot of people, uh, both, you know, I think I know it especially Christian and Jewish, but also I know have some indigenous friends who really uh, work on an integration of the two. And that can really, you know, you can really see um, you know, see what is brought in that maybe what's missing in one tradition that's brought in by the other. And it goes both ways. You know, like, like the example I gave, social justice isn't a strong, isn't much of an emphasis in Buddhist tradition, right? But that comes in, in the uh, Jewish and Christian traditions. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. I think we have now Victoria, please. Thanks, Donald. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay, because there was a back and forth with the microphone. Um, welcome back, first of all, and thank you so much for this presentation. This is, um, of course, my very favorite subject, <laughs> um, sort of comparative religions and spiritual traditions. Um, I don't think there's time now um, especially with like dedicating the merit and things for my question, but I'm just wondering, um, can we continue with this next week? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll um, let me, let me let, let it settle, but I'll, I'll take that as a, a recommendation. <laughs> yes, it's definitely a recommendation. Cause I think there was a lot to process today and, and the, um, it was great and brought up a lot of questions. So I think um, probably many of us here would like to have a, more of a time for Q and A next week, maybe if oh, possible. Oh yeah, yeah. Let me uh, let me do a show of hands. How many people would like to explore this? You know, <laughs> continue with this a little further. And how many people are fine choosing another topic? Okay, it looks like it looks like the first group has more votes, at least as I'm seeing on the first group <laughs> of twenty-five. So I will take that as a strong recommendation. Uh, I wasn't sure. I was I was reserving originally Bob Marley to do next time, but I saw we had a little bit of extra time, so I, I brought in Bob Marley. Yeah. Um, thanks. Was that it, Victoria? Oh yeah, yeah. I just because because my question would take time to for you to answer, okay. so I'll leave it till next week then. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks. Maybe time for one more. If there's anyone who wanted to share something, ask something. Uh, Donald, I did get a question that came in via chat. Oh, great. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, great. It is, uh, let me go up to it. It came in a little bit earlier. And the question is, uh, the individual loves the idea of a personal Ramadan and home retreat based on my own spiritual practice. Yeah. Uh, She can see the benefits of integrating spiritual life with normal life. Yeah. And the question is, can you please provide some advice on how someone can go about in structuring that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Like I said, I've I've taught a I've taught a number of uh, online retreats, but one of them especially we focused on daily life practice. I think it was 5 days, and then I also did a follow-up group, so we had I think four or five sessions. So effectively, we had about another 2 months of really focusing on having daily life practice come alive. And so it can be helpful to do it with a group. So one possibility is to have an online retreat that you do with a group, even if it's not focusing on daily life, and then have a special focus on the time when you're not gathered together on Zoom. You know, and with with particular focus on a few areas. One would be uh, maybe something like meals. You could have meals be, if possible, at least one or two be silent. You could um, you could do some meditation periods 
outside of the framework of the of the online retreat. You could work especially with speech. We, we you know in the daily life practice retreat we. I believe I gave some guidance for speech practice, which is really crucial, um, you know, and something I teach on a lot. So to take the times when you're actually talking with people as uh, part of the retreat. So nothing is excluded. One of the keys is that we, I'll mention a few of the keys that we found in this uh, online retreat on daily life practice. One was after the end of every sitting, when you're going back, so to speak, to normal everyday life, set your intention, take a minute or two setting the intention for what comes next. You know, like, you know, if you're, if you have uh, an hour and a half till you meet again, set your intention, how am I going to use this next hour and a half in a way that's continuous with practice? And um, another key is pausing is having a few times during the day when you pause just for a minute or two or three and come back to being present. Something else is having a one or two, maybe three, five to ten minute rituals, which you do every day, which could be like, you know, okay, after, after lunch, I take a ten minute walk. You know, I do that every day. And, you know, I, I do it as a form of silent practice. Or, you know, what, what I did for a long time when I needed to do some knee exercises uh, in the morning, I would actually use those 10 minutes doing the knee exercises as a time of silent practice. So if you have a few pauses and two or three times when you maybe have five or 10 minutes that you do in a ritual way, meaning you do it every day, after a while, if you don't do it, you feel weird. And, and that, that, so those are a few, you know, it can really help also if you're doing it with a group or just with one friend that can, so those are, those are a few tips. Okay. But it's a great idea. And, you know, and uh, to, you know, it could be done with a, you know, a family uh, or, you know, a partner, whatever, just really uh, giving, giving support for that. Great. So, okay, well, let's finish in two ways. Thank you, first of all, Carlita, for your support and, and help. And we'll finish in two ways. First is to bring to mind whatever may have been helpful from our time together. May have been from related to my talk or the discussion, but it may be not related. Maybe during the talk or during your meditation, you had a certain kind of insight that's important. So what's important for you that you want to, in a way, uh, continue from our morning? And then secondly, we do the traditional dedication of merit. May the benefits of our time together be there for us and be there for all others. Ultimately, may the benefits of our time together be there for all beings, knowing that this, knowing that this includes us. So thank you very much. Thank you for letting me indulge in my experiment with with this uh, topic, not like my usual ones, and I, I hope it worked for you. So thank you. Okay, till next thank time. Thank you so much. It was so good. Yeah, you can uh, unmute and, uh, and say goodbye or say whatever you'd like. Thank you. That was wonderful. I loved the music. Thank you, Carlita. Oh, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Carlita. That was, I love both your smiles. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Carlita. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's good to see you, as always, Donald. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Anna, for all your your sharing. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. No, no, you had the best time in Germany, and I love that, but it's it's not my place. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that that's it's good to know. It's good. It's great to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good resources here. Yeah. 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 Very good. And that means I can finally come to Spirit Rock in person at one point. It's yeah. So amazing. Very good. Yeah. Okay. And are, where are you now? I'm in, sh- in the south of Germany because I keep I keep moving because okay. Berlin just depresses me so much. So I'm now in my German car with the um, San Bernardino dog who's kind of half a wolf, half, I don't know what oh, he yeah. is. He's amazing. And um, half a husky, half a white German shepherd. Yeah. Um, it's bizarre and beautiful and he's really young. And today he just escaped and went for a chicken 